Professor Peter Singer has been deplatformed from a commercial venue for the first time in his 50-year career. His expertise spans across improving animal rights, reducing global poverty, bioethics, and much more. My company, Think Inc., has taught some of the greatest minds in the world across Australia and New Zealand. And this June, we're touring Peter. Sky City, the chosen venue for the Auckland show, has decided to terminate their contract with us, citing concerns of reputational damage that could be caused by Peter's appearance at the venue. At Think Inc., we are not in the business of provocation. We are in the business of leading intellectual lights of our generation to gain platforms to speak to broad audiences, unfiltered. As a premier events producer in the intellectual space, we are sincerely taken aback by this unprecedented circumstance. This is a first for our organisation and for Peter. This sets an incredibly dangerous precedent for all forms of intellectual discourse and is an affront to academic freedom. The ability to openly discuss ideas, even controversial ones, lays at the heart of liberal democracies. We need a society and corporate environment that encourages open discussion, not one that prohibits it. The spectrum of allowable speech will become narrower and narrower unless we take a stand now. The idea that Peter Singer, the academic who donates a large portion of his salary to charity, including 100% of the profits from our tour together this June, could be deplatformed for his apparent immorality seems laughable, but it's real. If a man of his stature can be the victim of the speech police, then anybody could be next. If an alternative venue cannot be secured, Sky City's cancellation of this event will deprive thousands of dollars from those who need it most. To justify the cancelling this event, Sky City cited moral concerns around Peter's philosophical views. But surely those in abject poverty halfway around the world have a greater claim to this moral concern. With regrettable accuracy, Peter summed this up best. Extreme poverty is not only a condition of unsatisfied material needs, it is often accompanied by a degraded state of powerlessness. We are doing everything to ensure the Auckland show takes place and all our proceeds will still be donated to The Life You Can Save to help the organisation raise much needed funds for 22 highly effective charities working to transform the lives of people in extreme poverty in low income countries. In the words of Eric Weinstein, it's time for Australia and New Zealand to lead the way, become the intellectual wild south, the counterweights to our friends in the Northern Hemisphere. Let this be the place where we can discuss ideas, not suppress them. While they experience cancel culture and deplatforming, we need to ensure that down under we maintain the right to free speech within our laws. As a business owned and founded in Australia, I call all my friends and colleagues who have a voice in this movement down under to stand up and stand by my side in solidarity against the tyranny of cancel culture. If not, we are all complicit in the death of the intellectual exchange and more importantly, the death of our most fundamental tenet of democracy, the freedom of speech. What's up, ladies and gentlemen of the internet? My name is Jade and today, I need to apologize because I messed up the beginning of this podcast. So what I want to say is up for you right now, we've got Professor Peter Singer, Professor of Princeton University in the United States. Uh, Peter caught a lot of flack uh, recently here in New Zealand because of his views around disabled children and suffering. Uh, Peter wasn't actually coming to New Zealand to speak on that, but the outrage caused Peter to be released from the corporate venue that he had booked effectively 
um, deplatforming his speech. I didn't like that very much at all. So I used my resources, my tools, and my people around me to bring Peter onto the Jade Farrow show. It was a really robust, um, really honest conversation. I really enjoyed my time with Peter. Um, he's not at all what I expected. Very approachable. I don't know why I would think that he's not approachable, but, you know, in terms of what I was expecting, you know, there was a real warmness about him. So we dig into the freedom of speech bit. We talk about his charity, the life you can save. And we also talk about his actual views on the lives of disabled people. Really interesting chat, really worthwhile, and I hope you enjoy it. Thanks. Engagement uh, as a result of some opposition, um, particularly because they hadn't really contacted uh, me or the tour organizer about you know what was being said was this accurate um, what did I want to say in response uh, it seemed like a very knee-jerk kind of reaction to some criticism that I wasn't really sure uh, from how many people that criticism was even coming uh, and I, I do think that we should try to encourage diversity of ideas and we should uh, allow venues to be used for people whom we may disagree with to host somebody doesn't indicate that you're agreeing with them. So, uh, yeah, I thought it was, as I say, a, a precipitate kind of response and, and an unfortunate sign of being too ready to not host speakers who might be controversial with some section of the community. Yeah, right. And I, I just want to be really clear because this is what I was really passionate about when I reached out to you, you weren't even coming to New Zealand to talk about disability, is that right? Yes, that's absolutely right. This was a <laughs> speaking tour sponsored by The Life You Can Save, which is a, a charity I've uh, founded. Um, and it's the, the aim is to help people in extreme poverty to save lives and give better quality of life to people living on $2 a day or less in uh, low-income countries in the world. Uh, that was the whole point of the tour. And, and the tour organizer had agreed to donate all the profits from the tour uh, to that charity. So, uh, yeah, it, it really would have had uh, a negative effect on people who are very needy um, for, for the tour not to go ahead. So I, I want to I come to, to the work... Uh, that you do in terms of fundraising and helping people. You talk about effective altruism. I, I know it's a big subject, probably too big for a half an hour conversation, but could you give us a summary of what that means and why you're so passionate about it? Well, effective altruism is a relatively new movement, um, maybe founded uh, about 12 years ago now. Uh, but taking up some themes that are quite familiar, the altruism part of the theme is, is familiar. That's the idea that we should live our lives so that at least one of our aims uh, is to leave the world a better place than it would have been if we'd not been here. Uh, perhaps, to put it more strongly, to do as uh, much good as we can in the world. Uh, not that effective altruists are saints uh, or expect others to be saints, but rather that that should be a part of what we do, um, one of the things that we think of as important in our life. 
Uh, and uh, as I say, that's something that you know quite familiar. You could uh, find it in in many sources, in many ethical traditions over millennia. Uh, it's the effective part of it that is somewhat new, uh, yeah. and that's that's because it, in a way, it relies on new data and new evidence that wasn't always available before and, and it relies on the use of reason and scientific method to try to work out uh, well what is the most effective thing we can do to make the world a better place uh, uh, and particularly let's say if we're looking as, as I said the life you can save is looking at helping people in extreme poverty there are thousands of charities out there that are trying to do that but clearly some of them are much more effective at doing it than others. And it's really important to know, if you're thinking of donating to a charity to help people in extreme poverty, it's really important to know which are the most effective ones. Uh, and now that evidence is starting to get out there. It's uh, independent, independent assessments of the effectiveness of organizations that uh, never really used to be available, but that thanks to the Internet, everybody can now very easily get hold of. Really quickly, I just want to say that I did catch your talk on the shallow, the shallow lake, and also the shallow pond, yeah, shallow pond, we, and right. also your 2013 uh, TED talk where you start by showing a child unfortunately being run over. So, 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 so I, I think I absolutely grasp. The concept of being effective because because we all we all say as you've said that we would step in but would we really when it's over in africa far far away as you say not exactly. as eloquently of yeah. course yeah. yeah that's right and thanks for mentioning that the ted talk uh if your uh, viewers and listeners would like to see me develop that idea of effective altruism in uh i think it's 18 minute talk um, yeah, you can you can find it online, Peter Singer, uh, TED talk, uh, and uh, it gives a, a, a synopsis that has some video and uh, maybe goes into a little more detail than we'll manage today. Yeah, awesome. Now, now it goes without saying, I probably do need to come to your views on disability. I, I don't know if this helps the conversation uh, be more robust, but just so you know where I'm at in my my viewers and listeners know this very well. I, I'm extremely pro-life, so so I've not heard your your talks and, and your perspective around suffering, and, and I I think that the real meat and potatoes of this conversation today here, Peter, is um, what what are your views? Because I'm mindful that. Actually, I want to ask you a question before you answer that. Did anybody from the disability community actually reach out to you in regards in regards to your coming to New Zealand? Did they express concern? Did they invite for a conversation? Did did anything like that happen? Uh, no, nobody um, nobody contacted me um, to express their concern or to suggest we have a conversation. Uh, I only found out about the opposition in New Zealand from reading the newspaper article that uh, I first mentioned it. Thank you for that. So, so coming to your views around disability, I've, re I've read bits and pieces. I, I think I have an understanding, but I'm not going to put words in your mouth. Please tell us what your actual concept around uh, disabled children and suffering is. 
Okay, but let me just start with some things that uh, sure. are already commonplace in our society, where you and you may not like them, but um, sure. let's just let's just look at what at what happens. Firstly, of course, as you would know, um, uh, women have the ability to have prenatal diagnosis to detect whether their child will have a disability. Uh, the, the current tests uh, reveal various kinds of disabilities, um, but to take what I would regard as one of the milder disabilities, and uh, that's Down syndrome, um, the evidence shows that uh, I think about 85% of women who are told that their uh, child will have Down syndrome terminate the pregnancy. So, um, and that's something that you know is perfectly legal. Um, certainly, that there might be some people who challenge it or think it shouldn't happen, but it's totally mainstream to say uh, yes, women should get prenatal diagnosis, and yes, if the diagnosis shows that their child will have a significant disability, it's fine for them to choose to terminate the pregnancy. So that's that's the attitude, if you like, that we have to making decisions prior to birth. And now, after, that, yeah. yeah, good. Uh, after birth, we also make decisions uh, based on disability. Uh, those decisions are to withdraw treatment when a newborn infant has um, a condition that requires um, medical treatment. Um, most obviously, for example, excuse me, most obviously, um, a, a, a premature baby will need uh, assistance in breathing <coughs> um, and it is likely to be put on a respirator. Um, but suppose that in addition to being premature, further tests show that the baby has had a major brain hemorrhage um, and, the, and the doctors estimate that because of the amount of damage done to the brain during the brain hemorrhage, uh, the child will be severely disabled. Um, in extreme cases, they might say the child will never be able to talk or walk or even smile when uh, the child's mother or father comes into the room uh, and will need to be fed. Um, in other cases, the disability might be less. But it's, it's certainly common when that happens for the doctors to commence a discussion with the parents about whether they wish to discontinue treatment. Um, and the, it's, it's clear in those discussions that if treatment is discontinued, the infant will die. So, again, that's something that is, is pretty standard in most of the countries that I'm familiar with, certainly in Australia, New Zealand, United Kingdom, United States, those countries with which we share a lot of cultural similarities. Uh, and again, as far as I've seen, nobody really challenges uh, that, very few people. So, uh, we are also making life and death decisions for disabled infants after birth. Um, and and Again, what I think is important in, in both of these cases is it's the parents who are making the decision, perhaps the pregnant that's woman. So, that's so important. I was going to come to that because in everything that I've read, you've not made a determination over a life. Is that correct? That is correct, yes. I very often get asked, you know, well, what do you mean by disabled? What's your definition of disability or what's your definition of disability that is serious enough to end the life of the child? And I say... That's not up to me because for some parents, um, they would be fine with uh, degrees of disability that other parents would not be. And, and they would say, of course, we'll love and cherish that child. We'll bring that child up as part of our family and give the child the best possible life. 
And in, in those cases, I say, great, well, if you're prepared to do that, um, your child probably will have um, a, a you know, quite reasonable life, depending a bit on the severity of the condition, but uh, very likely to, because that's the best thing that can happen to a child, to be brought up in a loving family. Um, but other parents might say, no, we don't feel we could cope with such a child. Uh, it would be too difficult for our existing children, perhaps. Uh, and you know, the fate of the child is then much less rosy in general when parents have that attitude. But it's, uh, so my point is it's, it's the parents who need to make the decision and need to think uh, what they're comfortable with in terms of the child that they have. Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you for that because I, because I think something was definitely getting lost uh, within our community in terms of your perspectives. Because I was, I was hearing that people thought that you said you you preferred that disabled people weren't alive. I just want to put a pin in that question and just make absolutely sure that's not your perspective. No, that's not my perspective at all. Um, <laughs> No, I've, I've certainly uh, never said anything like that. Um, <clears throat> I suppose there would be some very extreme cases where the child would be really suffering in, in great pain and then was, was bound to die within a relatively short period where I would think it might be cruel to keep a child alive. Um, but those are very rare and extreme cases, fortunately. Sure. Um, I, I want to ask this. I, I don't actually know if you you have any, any formal perspective on it. I'm not sure I've read anything so far. But in terms of the global euthanasia debate, so now moving to adults make, making their own decisions about ending your life, I, I think I know where you are because you talk a lot about minimizing suffering, but do you, do you want to tell us if you have any view at all on that? Uh, I certainly hold the view that um, competent adults should be able to choose uh, how they want to die. I'm thinking of adults here who are either terminally ill or have uh, an incurable medical condition that has been assessed by doctors and more than one doctor agree that uh, the condition is terminal or, or incurable, that they can't uh, remedy whatever the problem is. Um, and I think then it's, it's up to competent adults to say whether life, the remainder of their life, is worth living, how, how long they want to go on for. And some may well want to go on right to the end and, and should be supported. But others may say, you know, no, at this point, my life has lost all of the characteristics that make it worthwhile. The quality of my life is now so poor that I would rather die now than die in a month or two months or whatever it might be. Um, so I, I do support uh, what sometimes called physician assistance in dying, sometimes mm. called physician assisted suicide, sometimes and, and somewhat slightly different cases are known as voluntary euthanasia, where, where I think the difference being that in voluntary euthanasia, the doctor may give the patient a lethal injection uh, at the patient's request, whereas in physician assisted dying, the physician can write a prescription and the patient can get a drug uh, that the patient can take and, and know that the patient will fall asleep and not wake up but the patient has to actually take the drug so that's that's the situation that we now have uh, legally here in Victoria where I am now and uh, also in Western Australia and that seems to be spreading to uh, quite a number of uh, countries and jurisdictions around the world by my clock we've got about 10 maybe least minutes left for our interview Peter 
I, I'm noticing that my viewers have a few questions. I wonder if we can come to some of those right now. So I'll share, sure, let's do that. I'll, yep. sh I'll share a bit of my time. So we've got ants asking how you feel about euthanasia with people with mental disorders. And I suppose broadening that question, um, where, where is the line of judgment? Yeah. Right. Yeah, there's an, there are interesting questions about when you can say, you know, a competent adult, that's a phrase you can easily say, but exactly how you draw the line is not so easy. Um, generally speaking, in most of these jurisdictions do not recognize mental illness uh, as a sufficient ground for um, ending life, or they say that if you are mentally ill, then you're not competent to make that decision. And of course, there would be some mental illnesses where you're not competent to make the decision. That's true. But um, the one that is, is most relevant to that, I think, is uh, severe depression, uh, clinical depression that has been treated for a long time. And, and I've had discussions with people with that condition. And uh, I know that some of those cases have been uh, acted on in, in some of the countries with liberal laws on euthanasia. Um, Belgium and the Netherlands are examples of that. Uh, and I can I can understand that I can see that you know depression clearly causes terrible suffering I think there's no doubt that um, the mental suffering of depression can be very severe um, now in many cases of course it can be treated fortunately but there are cases that seem to resist all kinds of treatment and if somebody has been undergoing treatment for depression for 10 or 15 or 20 years and nothing has really helped, and they say, this is just too horrible, um, I want to die. Uh, I wouldn't say the fact that they have depression shows that they're not competent to make that judgment. I think they, they are the ones in a position to know what they're experiencing. They, they have tried all the ways of curing their condition, and they failed, and they may then say at some point, it's not worth trying more. I don't think it's going to work, and anyway, it's too bad to continue. Um, we've got a bit of a long one here from Rachel. Thank you for that, uh, Professor. Uh, so bear with me as I read it. Uh, what, this is from Rachel. What are your thoughts on my personal situation? I have muscular dystrophy. I have two da daughters that are healthy and non-disabled. They contribute to society, have no suffering, and through them... You know, you know, they made their father's dream come true to have children, I'm guessing. It's a, it's a bit hard to read this. Um, if I had been terminated, my family line would be gone. My daughter may be the next big thing. She's the daughter of a leader and one of one of the best mechanic engineers in the world. Chance she will do something amazing. If I didn't exist, neither would she. What is your feedback on that premise? Well, I'm delighted that you have such uh, wonderful daughters, of course. Um, that's very good. But, you know, of course, one can't really predict how one's children will, will turn out. Um, <laughs> it's, it's best when they turn out well, of course. Yeah. But, you know, th this would be an argument, really, for saying uh, not only that we shouldn't end the life or the parents shouldn't choose to end the life of their severely disabled infants but also that parents should have children because you know if, if, if a couple decide and some of my friends have decided that they're not going to have children at all 
you, that equally would prevent the birth of a, a child who might turn out to be a leader in mechanical engineering or in medicine or in you know whatever other field you think is is wonderful um so i don't really think that we can use that as an argument against um parents being able to decide to end the lives of their severely disabled infants unless you also want to use it as an argument against uh allowing people not to have children um because that basically the, those decisions have the same effect I, I suppose one point I do want to cover is that uh, questions leading up to this interview, people have been asking me, you, you know, it's all well and good. It's all well and good for parents to make that decision. So I'm hearing people say that's fine. The, the, the issue for them, though, was where does the advice come from? So, so do, you, do yeah. you have anything to say? On oh, that? absolutely. No, because look, that's that's yeah. That, that's a very good point, and it's one on which I I have been made aware by the disability movement over the years, um, because I think when I first wrote about this, which would go back to the 1970s, um, I simply said, you know, parents advised by their doctors, and I, I was made aware that. Uh, you know, there, there are prejudices in the community that, that doctors also share about how severe disabilities mm. uh, might be and what they're like for families and for children. So I, I now say um, that parents should seek out a variety of sources of inf information. Uh, in particular, if they have a child with a specific disability, they should try to contact uh, organisations of parents of those children or, in some cases, depending obviously on the disability, they could talk to adults who have grown up with, with that disability. Um, so I think, yes, there, there is a role for getting a broad range of information and for getting information from people who uh, live with the condition or whose children have the condition uh, in order to really make your decision on the basis of uh, full information about, about the child's prospects. That all seems reasonable, and just so you're aware, there's a lot of energy in my chat rooms, a lot of people saying thank you. Uh, I'm guessing this is the first time they've heard your perspective. Now, now I want to prepare for a soft uh, landing in the, in the interview, if you will. So, so I just want to come to the point of the fact that you actually donate a fixed portion of your money to charity don't you we started by talking about the work you do but i didn't actually land on that point you 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 are dedicated to donating your own personal money i do yes it's not exactly a fixed proportion i started off with 10 percent <laughs> of my income uh that was um, more than 40 years ago uh and as my income has increased and uh and my children have become independent and so on i've i've stepped that up but it I, my wife and I look at it each year, and uh, lately we've been giving somewhere between a third and, and half of our income to uh, effective charities because we're able to do that, and we're you know happy to do that. It's a fulfilling thing to do. Um, I would like to say I, I did talk about the TED talk that we mentioned at the beginning, but the, the thing that I forgot to say then was uh, the book that I wrote on this called The Life You Can Save. Um, it came out first ten years ago, and I've now updated it um, and produced a, an ebook and an audiobook versions and anybody who'd like to read that can download them completely free from the website of the life you can save oh so wow to, that's amazing free yeah it's great yeah so we're really trying to get people to read it so uh, the life you can save.org 
um, whether you want to read or listen to it, either way. And the, the audio book, by the way, has been read by quite a few celebrities. Uh, the uh, actress Kristen Bell, the uh, singer-songwriter Paul Simon, uh, the BBC host and comedian Stephen Fry. Uh, we've got a lot of people who contributed their time um, and an effort to read a chapter of it. So uh, if you prefer to listen to books, then uh, oh, do get the so audio. amazing. Hannah's actually blind, so that'll be perfect for her. It is. Ah, terrific. That's, yeah, that's, yeah. That'd be, good. That'd be good. awesome. Um, Peter, my, my producers, Hannah and everybody behind me that's been working on this uh, podcast wanted me to ask if you had a message for the disability community because I guess this is one of the only opportunities that you've had to, I wouldn't say front up, but be given a platform to have a voice on, on the whole issue that you had. Is, that, is there anything finally you want to say to people other than me? Well, I, I do want to thank you for giving me that platform. And uh, I think that it, it is important to have uh, freedom of speech and discussion. And uh, I certainly understand that some people in the disability community will disagree with my views. Um, that's fine. And I think we can have useful discussions about that. But uh, the idea that because you disagree with people, they shouldn't be given a platform to speak, I think is completely contrary to the principles of uh, a free and open society that should uh, welcome controversial ideas and, and the proper response to an idea you don't agree with is to say why you think it's wrong. Um, and, and that's what people should be doing, not trying to shut I, the ideas up. I could not agree more without free speech, we really don't have a society in my view. I mean, what are we based on then? Yeah, we certainly don't have a democratic society anyway. I think that's, uh, that's quite right. So, so just finally, how, how can my viewers, uh, the people in the chat, support your work, find your material? How can they get involved with things that you do, Peter? Uh, well, um, I do have a website, which is petersinger.info. INFO, um, and you can find out more about my writing and uh, things that I do from that website. As I said, you can also look at thelifeyoucansave.org, and uh, that has a lot of information about the, that organization. Uh, so those are, those are useful things to do. Um, yeah, that's probably the, the main ways that you can connect with, with what I'm doing. Um, by the way, although the tour has been... Uh, postponed because of the coronavirus crisis and obviously it's not possible to travel now sure. the plan is for me to still uh, do the tour in April of next year uh, the dates are not absolutely firmly fixed yet but um, I'm hoping to be in Auckland uh, most likely in April of 2021 and of course we hope all of this coronavirus crisis is uh, well and truly over by then well I absolutely wish you the best and and this is not just to hype the live stream, but Hannah and I were actually looking at getting uh, VIP tickets so we could have got a photo with you. Uh, so we look forward to maybe be, being able to do that next year. Yeah, I hope so. Thank you. Thanks very much, Jade. Thank you. Thanks. It's been good to talk to you too, Hannah. Um, good to talk to you both. Peter, Thank this has so been much, a mind-blowing conversation. I hope you will consider coming back on at some stage. Yeah, I'm, I'd be happy to do that uh, after some, some time. So, uh, yeah. yeah.
Thank you very much. Fantastic. You have a great evening, and we'll see you again. Thank okay. you so much, Peter. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. Bye. Wow. Wow. How was that? Now, now's the bit where we, we do the reflections. <laughs> what do people think now? With so, the so Peter's not actually on the line anymore. No, he's, not, he's not here. He's, he can't hear what we're saying. Yeah, he's totally gone. One thing I wanted to say, messed up the sound at the beginning. Yeah. They didn't hear the intro. They didn't hear any of the video. I think Ants tried to reach me through the chat and say, can't hear, can't hear. But I was so mindful of getting Peter set up yeah. that, that I didn't check that. So the podcast overall is going to sound a bit awkward at the beginning. Um, thank you. Thank you, Ants. Uh, thank you, Rachel. Rachel says I killed it. I just want to thank Hannah for the amazing preparation, the questions. I've got a photographic memory. Didn't pick up the no, iPad one. Did I get all the questions though? Yes. Yes. I think the really good thing is there's a couple of questions that you did miss off, but what you did was you just elaborated on what Peter was saying and reacted to what Peter was saying. So it made it more of a conversation rather than just thinking prescribed questions that I wrote down, you know. Some of what he said you reacted to and I was expecting he'd probably bring up some of it, so it was great. I mean, the, for me, that was mind-blowing. Because Peter, like, like for all the vilification of this guy, Professor, you, you know, he's a really down-to-earth dude. Yeah. And like, do you know actually what it made me think of? <laughs> what? It made me think of enabling good lives in the sense of totally. actually promoting... Honourable space. <laughs> Doctors having the correct information, Plunkett having the correct information, and families whānau and disabled people being able to share their perspectives on actually what it is like living. So we don't get to the space in New Zealand that, you know, you're suffering. So actually newly new parents will, will be able to have that information. So I really look forward to the growth and development of systems transformation and EGL and I'm really curious to get Rachel's perspective on that conversation because y you know Rachel has a real heart for the community and, and I can I can I can totally understand anyone that would say Jade why why would you do this you you're just you're just doing it for attention I swear that's not why I did it I just wanted to get to the truth. I think the big thing is I really believe in freedom of speech. You know, we noticed, pardon me, last year, um, same thing happened. An event was cancelled because people didn't like who was coming and the La controversial. Lauren Southern. Lauren Southern, yeah. yeah. And Stefan Molyneux. And the same thing is you, you had to pay to go and see him. So... We should be able to have freedom of speech where we can learn cool. off each other. Clive says, never thought this stream was about getting attention. Thank you so much, Clive. We're, we like to consider this a genuine space of the sharing of ideas. And just because my name's on the stream, 
doesn't mean they have to have to be only my ideas that exist. Hannah, absolutely mind-blowing work in the production of this. Thank you so much. The technical errors were 100% my fault, though. Hannah had nothing to do with that. So I do apologize, guys. I'm really f***ed off, actually, that it was all silent in the beginning. So the more, more podcasts we can do, yeah. the better it will get.